Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey, folks. Today, I am joined by John D'Angelo, who writes for the uh, Bad Roman Project blog, and he wrote an article titled, God Weeps for His Church. Won't you give us a little background of yourself and tell us about your time in the military? Sure. So, um, just turned 29 this year. I'm um, a dad and uh, I'm a nurse in an emergency room now. Um, before that, I, uh, I was in the Marine Corps. I, I enlisted right out of high school in 2009. And uh, in 2011, I was deployed to Afghanistan, Helmand Province, out of the major Marine Corps base there um, called Camp Leatherneck. And I was a truck driver there. Uh, at the time, I, I was a atheist agnostic and um, non-ideological politically. And uh, when I got home, I um, started having pretty significant change, changes of heart in my politics and also spiritually. I met my wife um, and I got saved and became a Christian. And um, now I started writing anti-war propaganda. Okay, well, let's, uh, I want to bring something up that you put, you put in your article. It says, in your article, you mentioned saying, having a word for American Christians, for too long, the church, the body of Christ, has clung to old glory and the tenets of particular political parties instead of Christ himself. And you mentioned yourself being included in this group. At what point, as a member of the military, or did it happen after you left the military, did you realize that none of this was right? <laughs> um, well, you know, this article is not going to win me a lot of Christian friends. Um, <laughs> and this, this interview probably won't either. But to me, the political process is expressly messianic and hubristic. Politicians, they want to tell us that they're going to give us salvation to whatever woe their target at audience has. And at the same time, professing Christians are putting their faith in politicians to provide security or to safeguard liberty or get the right trade agreements or remake foreign policy governments in America's image. I mean, the list goes on. But Christians suffering this delusion should balk at this. Um, and they should say that, you know, if they're trying to defend their position, they'd say that it's merely playing by the rules that were established for, for them by forefathers or the founders or whatever. But Christians throughout history, even to the present day, have persisted under totalitarian regimes, even when they were being hunted like game and thrown into the Colosseum, whatever. And, you know, their faith wasn't in having a fair hearing with the government um, or trying to remake the political system that they found themselves in. And when I have had this conversation in the past, people will say, well, um, you know, those times were different. The Romans, the Ottomans, the Soviets, the North Koreans and Chinese today, they don't allow for petition, which I think is fair in a secular context, but it also shows that their faith is still in this political system to supersede um, their faith in God. And they want the political system to provide for them or to comfort them, to give them rest, to give them security. And they forget their charge to be a witness to Christ and to be a suffering servant and not to be a political change agent. Right. That's 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 good stuff. Um, because 
that's one of the frustrating things for me is the the amount of faith that they put in government and not in Christ. You know, and I go, I keep going back to this, but I was the same way. You know, I did, I spent a lot of time pushing the the rights agenda because I thought it was the right thing to do, but it was. It turns out that they're they're just as evil as the left. But back then, I wouldn't, have, I couldn't, have, I wouldn't have said that. I mean, I thought, you know, the GOP was the the right thing to do. You know, they're 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 talking against abortion. They're not doing anything against abortion. They're not ending abortion. They're still funding it with Planned Parenthood. Yeah, and I I think that these politicians are certainly cynical enough to know that um, if you if you were to destroy the premise of a given rallying point for your base, it only hurts you. And so it doesn't benefit politicians on the right to try to abolish abortion because it's a huge single issue voting block for tons of Americans, some of which I know personally. Uh, protecting Israel, it's not in their best interest to end foreign occupations of given wars when the outspill might be into Israel itself, causing violence and then justifying further war. You know, we, we don't want to do that if we're Republican politicians because that's again another constituency that we're going to lose. That's that's an interesting point because it reminded me of something a friend of mine told me, and he was he worked for the government, and he was I think it was back I don't know if it was was George H W Bush was president or when Reagan was president, but Carl Rove was in, somehow involved with one of the two, and somebody came to him and asked him about a uh, you know they were worried about losing the uh, Christian right vote over something and. Carl Rose's response was, "Don't worry about it. They don't have anywhere else to go." That's pretty. That's pretty crappy. I mean, is he? He's right. I mean, you're not going to see Christians suddenly jump on the libertarian train, not in huge droves, you know. So, and they're definitely not going to go to the left, and so they're going to stay entangled with with government. They're just going to continue to vote with the guy that's got the R by his name. I wonder if he's not kicking himself with that sentiment after finding Trump in office, though, because <laughs> he was such a repudiation of the Republican establishment and put in place by all those people they took for granted. Um, you know, I'm not a Trump supporter by any means, but um, you can't deny the fact that he was very much a, a Republican repudiation as much as he was a liberal one for Republican voters. Yeah. All right. So also in your article, you said... Um, we want ever more extravagant theatrics in the place of debate. This is progressivism in contemporary terms. What did you mean by that? Um, so last year, 2019, I read the second best book of the year by Michael Malice called The New Right. And he talks a lot about the framework that built the new right today, a lot of the thinkers that developed the ideas that we see in the new right. And then he also talks a lot about progressivism. So from that book, he he really goes to show that the progressive movement in the U.S. has been largely successful through incremental change in government and the way that people relate to government and to the state and to one another. And today we regularly will find so-called conservatives readily advocating for state action in just about every area of life, just like progressives would do. And it's something that progressives and conservatives of old just wouldn't be able to have imagined. But um, progressivism by its own axioms is totalitarian. It's this idea of fairness for everybody, whether the everybody likes it or not. And in real terms, that means using the government as a central authority to serve as an arbiter of goodness between 
the worst people among us and their victims, as far as they're concerned, um, to achieve social or economic justice. And these ideas all come from what Michael talks about as the cathedral, uh, which is an idea that was developed by a far-right blogger named Mencius Molbug. And the cathedral is the corporate press in the universities. So colleges form new opinions and they proliferate them to their students. And those students become educators and journalists. And then they use those presuppositions they got in college to form their worldviews and to teach new kids and to convey information through the press and so on. And um, we see the results of it today. I mean, every aspect of life is inherently political because progressives can't dissociate the political process from social change. And force, he talks about the evangelical left and how it's not about um, politicking so much as it is about converting people to their beliefs or from non-believers. And so the state's necessary because its force is necessary to convert these non-believers. And I think Christians just get too caught up with that, that paradigm. You mentioned the, uh, the evangelical left. Um, and you brought up something in your article as well. You were just talking about, um, based on the latest Pew data, American evangelicals and Mormons have empirically Republican bent, while historically black Protestant churches are reliably Democrat supporters. In both camps, the political Christians have been resoundingly supportive of their most recent presidents, Donald Trump and Barack Obama, respectively. And you said each report ascribing a high level of importance to their personal faith and say they participate in religious activities, yet the question is, where are the fruits? And then you go on to list uh, some examples like the bipartisan support of the federal domestic spying program, the seemingly never-ending wars of the Middle East, CIA torture program, the ever-growing list of governmental powers and its associated voted budget, the rampant and grizzly drone program known worldwide for targeting weddings, funerals, and school buses full of children. This is where my frustration comes from with Christians with their support with war. No matter who the guy is, if it's their guy in office, they, they turn a blind eye to all of this because their guy's in office. And this is where I get really frustrated because there is nothing Christ-like about what you just described in that article. Nothing. There, no, no, none of that resembles Jesus Christ at all. In fact, he would probably start chasing people around with a whip, <laughs> trying to get them out of the church if they're, at, if they're supporting stuff like this. Well, I think in political terms, Christians, I mean, everybody, but Christians are guilty of this with an added dimension of, of their faith um, because it does provide the moral grounding for their lives. I mean, one of the critiques of Christianity for non-believers is that they don't have um, a moral foundation, which I think is true. But we tend to shed that when we're talking in political terms. And again, I think it's a multidimensional issue, but you know, the idea that there's two parties and only two parties, and because there's that juxtaposition of these two supposedly opposite ideas, you have to imagine uh, an adherent to the Republican platform, a Christian believer in that, in that way of thinking, or for Democrats, they're going to need a lot of data points for them to outweigh their belief in that system. Because the alternative, just like Rove was saying, is the opposite party. And to go that route is, you know, something that they would never imagine themselves doing. And so when we hear about these drone strikes that kill busloads of children, 
or we hear about how Obama's secret kill list was used to extrajudiciously carry out a drone strike on an American citizen, or we hear about Trump early on dropping giant bombs and being called presidential for the first time and having a raid that actually killed uh, Anwar Alaki's daughter, Nora, who was four and left to bleed from her throat for four hours while U.S. military listened. Um, I think we, I think we lose sight of the gravity of all of those given data points because they're so sparsely given out in the media, and there's so many other pressing concerns. Which I, you know, I don't think necessarily is some scheme by the media to try to make information difficult for people to hear. I just think it's inconvenient truths for both sides that foreign policy is filled with these these pockmarks of absolute tragedy and Christians don't reckon with that. They'd rather just pass over that headline and go read about how the other team is doing something awful. How much pushback are you getting from, uh, you know, the so-called supporters of the troops or, you know, other, other vets? Are you getting any pushback from them from the stuff you're writing or? Um, nothing explicitly. I mean, I've certainly fallen out of favor, I think, particularly with my Marine Corps friends, um, which is fair. Uh, it's, you know, being a, an adherent to a belief in our foreign policy and then having someone, you know, talk against that, I, I get why they kind of prickle at that. But um, as far as family and my my connected circles in in my Christian, like through my church and my family, I haven't had any issues. I mean, I think they all know that I'm, um, we don't see eye to eye on this stuff, but um, they also don't hold it against me, which I guess I appreciate. Well, I, I, when we were talking yesterday on the phone, you mentioned you're a Sunday school teacher, right? I am, yeah, for a church called Thrive Church in Terryville, Connecticut. Okay, and you, uh, you, you were talking about some. Do you talk about some of this in your class when you when you're talking to them? And, and do you get, how are they reacting to that? Mm. It's, it's just it's just like that small group in your in your class. Yeah, I don't talk to the kids about anything expressly political. Um, you know, I, I try to keep it really hyper focused on whatever the lesson is. Um, but I've certainly talked to fellow churchgoers either on social media or in person about this stuff a little bit. And, um, you know, I, I don't think I'm changing any hearts or minds and I, I don't think I'm going to with this article either. I don't have any illusions that I will, but, um, I certainly try to plant those seeds for peace. And I, I know, um, one of the, the pastor's wives is at least sympathetic to the, the peacemaking mission that I'm trying to be on here writing and whatnot, which I really appreciate. Um, but yeah, I, I don't ever talk to the kids. So and what I've noticed, and I've going to church, you know, it's Christians in general, you know, the vast majority of Christians are going to be supporters of what we're doing over there. Or you can you can point to how Jesus would have reacted to something like this. And it's, I don't know, I don't, it's, it's like, it's not registering with them. You know, we're supposed to be patriotic and we're supposed to be, I don't have any problem being patriotic. I just have a problem with uh, mass murder. And that, that's the way I see what we're doing in, in the Middle East right now, you know, we're, None of our freedoms are rest in Syria or Yemen or Afghanistan. And, you know, if these teams, if they had attacked us, you know, it'd be one thing, but we're, we're, we're all over the place and I have no idea why. I mean, I can't used to, you know, used to, when I was a neocon, I was all about it, man. Let's go bomb the crap out of them. Cause if we don't, they're going to come attack us again. We don't even know who attacked us. 
I mean, we're we're most of the uh, terrorists on nine eleven, from what I understand, were from Saudi Arabia, right? Right. Okay, so why <laughs> we're giving Saudi Arabia money and weapons? Does that make any sense? I mean, and we're bombing Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Yemen, you know, and multiple other places, Libya. What I mean, yeah. Did any of those guys have anything to do with nine eleven attacks? Well, I think um, it. You know, it's an important question, and it speaks to mission creep that the DOD and CIA and, and all of them have sort of participated in willfully where they used the upset of the American public after 9-11 to post hoc rationalize all of these other military adventurist campaigns. Um, I don't think that anybody in foreign policy circles would even try to make the argument that Iraq had anything to do with 9-11 after 2002. And and to be clear, Dick Cheney did try to make that argument that there was some meeting in Prague between Saddam Hussein's uh, cohort and Al-Qaeda or whatever. But um, that was quickly debunked, um, not quickly enough, because it convinced enough people to support the war in Iraq, amongst other lies. But, um, you know, now, as far as like Syria or Somalia or Niger, um, all of those things are justified through geopolitical aims, and it's now taken for granted, I think, amongst the American public and by extension, the political apparatus that is trying to convince them of this stuff that um, it's actually in our best interest because of geopolitical aims against Iran or Russia or China or whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't even think the... Um, the David Frums and the David Frenches and the John Boltons of the world would be silly enough to try to say that this is because of 9-11. Um, I will say, though, to, to one of those points that you made about um, the bombings, I mean, even if we were to grant all of the arguments that they make about our freedoms needing to be protected overseas, Christians particularly should be really concerned about the fact that we use something like sanctions uh, where we starve or or keep valuable critical supplies from reaching everyday people as something completely unjust in an objective sense, regardless of the mission. And, you know, you can think whatever you want to think about the Iraqi people or the Taliban or uh, the Syrian government. But when we're talking about the um, everyday, you know, Joe Schmo of those various countries, they're the victims of these things. It's very often not the political class, Saddam Hussein being um, an exception, I guess, to that rule. But, uh, you know, I, it, our foreign policy should be something that every Christian takes offense at, not just um, ideologues like you and I. So what do, you, what do you think it is that they can't get past? I mean, speaking with other Christians, you know, with your experiences in Afghanistan, what are they having the trouble getting past as far as why we're over there or why they're supporting this? You know, and not looking at it from a, a Christ-like perspective, you know, what what are they what, what are they struggling with on it? Is it just because they're so embedded with government or they're so entangled with government that they're going to just follow whatever their guy's saying, no matter what? I mean, because you could see you were part of the Obama surge, right? Yeah. Okay, so you can even see, you know, the, the anti-war left, they disappeared when he was president. You know, he escalated these wars that Bush had started, and and now Trump has escalated what Obama's done, from what I can tell. And I, so I don't, I'm, having, I'm struggling with what what they are get, trying to get past. I know I can speak for myself. Whenever I was 
entangled with all that, you know, as a Christian, I, I used to take the viewpoint as we're doing God's work. For some reason, I could look at the Bible and say, well, that's the United States that they're talking about. We're supposed to be protecting Israel because that's what the Bible tells us to do. Is that where they're getting having trouble with? You know, because they, they use that excuse a lot as far as defending Israel. Yeah, I think that's certainly an, an aspect of it. You know, I think it's so multidimensional, it's kind of hard to pin down. I think first and foremost, to the point you made early on there, we are very much entangled with government insofar as we think that the government is an appropriate uh, means to achieving whatever ends we desire. And we are able to separate ourselves from the results of whatever those policies may be because we don't see it. Um, and so, you know, the average Christian who thinks ISIS has to be destroyed and every member of it needs to be um, either hypothetically or actually destroyed, um, they lose sight of their faith when talking in political terms because to them they're disassociated. Whereas for the people on the ground in Iraq, uh, the Christians who may be caught in the crossfire, um, it's certainly not for them. Uh, American foreign policy and American Christendom is not necessarily disconnected. And I think that uh, we need to really understand the tangible results of the things that we advocate for in policy um, and be a lot more skeptical of the goals of the foreign policy establishment or the government in a larger sense. Hey folks, Craig here, and I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors had no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page, and you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. I struggle with trying to remember how I, how I started my path towards anarchism, and I think it was... You know, I think I just woke up one day, but, I th you know, you're talking about the two-party system. I think that's where I started leaning towards, you know, I went to try to get involved with the Libertarian Party. But, you know, I think I started leaning towards anarchism when you realize that they have no interest in allowing a third party. You know, so I was like, what's the point? You know, this is this is wearing me out just trying to get this going because nobody's listening anyway. And so I started towards anarchism. I think it was when I just got completely frustrated with the whole thing. I was like, this isn't working. We got to try something different. I have no use for any of it. And I was curious, and I like to hear stories from other anarchists about how they got to where they are, you know, to their, their political view now as an anarchist. So I was going to ask you the same thing. At what point did you start shifting that way? I, I think I had a similar trajectory in that I, I took the milder, pragmatic position first and got interested in the Libertarian Party. I actually, um, in very small ways, helped a local Libertarian here. Uh, running for state office uh, by standing at the voting booths with a sign for him, which is the only overtly political action I've ever had. But I, I think um, I kind of always had the underlying understanding that this political process is not built for truly contrarian positions. Um, it's built to maintain itself. And so 
you know, if you had some sort of organism that had a self-defeating part of itself, it would die out immediately. It wouldn't serve it well. Um, I think the government is a lot of the same thing. It doesn't make any sense for them to have a party like the LP come in and stir things up when they've got a perfectly good gig going now. Um, I kind of view the LP like I view my blog, or I think you even view the podcast here is, you know, I don't need a million followers or readers. If I get one person to think in a different way about a given issue, I think I've won. And I think the LP serves that purpose in some respect. I don't think they go far enough, but, um, you know, because it's political, it's always messy and difficult and it never really comes out the way people want it to. Um, and so I kind of wash my hands of the LP too. Uh, instead, I'd much rather just, again, to reference Malice, he talks about how technology is going to be, it's going to make a lot of these conversations more or less irrelevant because a hundred years ago, we would have never heard the dissenting voices that you and I are providing right now. But now we can go online and click a few buttons and here we are talking about anarchism. It's just a couple guys in their in their respective houses across the country from one another. And we get to put that out online um, for everyone to potentially hear. And that's crazy. And that's something that governments have never had to um, contend with before. And so I think it will lead either to more totalitarian control, trying to clamp down on that, which we haven't seen too much of yet, or it will lead to growing doubt. I mean, 48, 49% of the population of eligible voters didn't vote in the last election. And it was supposedly the most important election of our lifetime, like they always are. That means we're halfway there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's a good point. You brought something else up in the article that I, I loved because the, the anger that came from the right whenever Colin Kaepernick took a knee during the national anthem was comical to me that the way people were acting, well, I'm not ever watching football again until they start standing for the flag or, you know, they're a bunch of overpaid babies and he should be respecting the military. And I didn't see it. That's what he was doing. But you said in the uh, article, you said, as flags were unfurled and, and hearts were covered, American Christians should have been the first to take a knee, not for one particular issue, but for the glory of God. And I love that, dude. That was, that was so cool, man. It kind of sent chills up my spine when I was reading it. Yeah. I mean, no single thing bothers me more about the church at large than the replacement of explicitly religious political symbols like the flag for Jesus. And, you know, whether it's flags hanging up um, in churches or Christians getting red faced with bluster because they're mad that a football player took a knee. Um, because it's disrespectful to the troops or to the pretenses that this country was built on or whatever, it's just so absurd to me. You cannot be a servant to two masters. And that's exactly what you're doing when you're coming to the defense of the American government on behalf of a flag against Colin Kaepernick, of all people. I mean, it, it could not be a, a more meaningless argument to be having and instead of trying to cross into his worldview and ask why he would be motivated to take a knee during the national anthem on national TV, we just write him off as a crybaby or whatever. I, that issue 
bothered me so much um, because he's right that there are a lot of police injustices in the in the country, and he's right that it disproportionately affects people of color. And even if we don't want to accept that, it's not a it's not a dishonorable thing to be advocating for. And if you're a football player with millions of eyes on you every Sunday and you have an issue that you want to draw attention to, I thought that was a pretty clever and really kind of Christian way of doing it. He quietly took a knee and didn't make anything about himself. He set himself apart in, in, a, in an act of disobedience that was supposed to make us examine our sacred cows and he caused an uproar. That's exactly how Jesus had his ministry function while he was here on earth. And I, I just, I cannot imagine a Christian who, who doesn't understand that and like finding common ground on political, on political terms. It's, it's so difficult. Um, And so that's why I generally stay apolitical at church, but. Yeah. That's interesting. I never looked at it that way because it was, you know, he did. It's all he did. He just took a knee. He wasn't out there throwing rocks through windows or, or shooting, going out and shooting other police officers or, or or whatever. He just took a knee quietly. It was a peaceful protest. That's great. That's we should be we should be peacefully protesting the government. I think that's what we're doing as an anarchist. You know, as it took the way I view anarchism. I'm, you know, a lot of people view it as rock throwers or. or flamethrowers or whatever, you know, or turning cars over, burning buildings. That's not, anarchism is supposed to be peaceful from the way I understand it. It's not supposed to be violently revolting against the government. Right. I mean, we're, we're anarchists 99% of our lives, just every individual in the world. We don't go to the state um, to sort out or arbitrate our issues about who's going to fold laundry and do dishes or um, if someone can pass the salt or if someone wants to let someone in on the highway, we don't need the government to get involved with those sorts of things. But we imagine when things get to a certain level of seriousness, then suddenly it's okay to flog your neighbor because they don't want to agree with you or they don't want to, you know, they're clutching their purses too tight or whatever. Um, we don't understand that we, to be an anarchist just means that we we reject rulers. And instead we want, voluntary interaction to take its place and nothing about the way government administers or sets policy is voluntary nothing that one that's 100 correct there's nothing voluntary about it. it's all it's it's 100 force everything that they use is force right i had a uh, somebody saw on her facebook page i had somebody message me the other day and he he said i get where you're coming from and i i, I like a lot of what y'all are talking about he said but he said but we're always going to have some sort of political system. And he said, so I just don't see how anarchism would work. I said, well, so I explained to him, I said, as a Christian, as a Christian anarchist, you know, we choose to follow Christ. We don't put our faith in any leader. You know, you know, a lot of anarchists would be like, no rulers, like they they don't even want to follow a God. But as Christians, you know, we follow Jesus Christ. That is our king. And that's what I was trying to explain to him is no king but Christ. So we don't put we don't get involved with people. I understand that. I'm I'm under no illusions that that government's gonna disappear tomorrow. You know, I think at some time, at some point the empire's gonna fall. I, I it just I, it can't sustain itself the way it's going. And then you're probably gonna have mass hysteria. But if people would just start getting away from it, 
then it won't be so bad. I mean, let them fall, just let them fall apart, you know, and then we'll just go about being ourselves and doing, you know, just like you said, living our lives like every day, 99% of our life, we've been anarchists. You know, we don't need them. We don't need them to do, to build roads. Well, we, we had in our lifetimes, well, actually just before my lifetime began, but um, in the near future or near past, rather, we had a, an object lesson for this. The Soviet Union collapsed peacefully and all of these, con- these states um, who were subjugated by the Soviet Union split apart. And they, it, it wasn't as if the uh, Gorbachev took the stand and, and told everybody that the Soviet Union was over and then the entire uh, northern part of Asia and Eastern Europe just set aflame. People just kept doing what they do. Um, and I think when, when I talk to people about anarchism particularly, I try to make the point that any service or good that you imagine the government provides for us is only because we as participants supposedly in the political process desire it. Everybody wants healthcare. Everybody wants rules for the road. Everybody wants security. Those things don't have to disappear just because we're not being given them from the government at the behest of all of the people who are being taxed and whatever. And they would be accountable to us. Whereas right now we know that that's not the case. So, you know, the idea that anarchism or voluntarism, which sometimes I prefer when I'm talking to Christians, because I think it's, it strikes more to the heart of a Christian nature is exactly what we should be looking for. And it's not, it doesn't have to be a political or ideological stand. If you are a follower of Christ who takes your charge seriously to spread the gospel and to live your life as an ambassador for the gospel, you can't go voting for people who are going to, to work against those ends. And every politician anywhere in the world is doing that because they're not trying to help people. They're in there for cynical motivations. And even when they are trying to help people, they're generally met with opposition or, you know, we've seen it in cases like Bernie Sanders and Ron Paul, right? They're probably both. I mean, I think Ron Paul certainly was, but Bernie's probably a well enough meaning guy. I I disagree with basically everything he's about um, from a policy standpoint, but the guy means well. And you can see what happens when dissenters from the establishment gain any sort of notoriety or attention. They're, they're castigated and made into fools. And we're just supposed to swallow that. You brought up a good point too, because I remember whenever I was, would, would talk to other anarchists before I was, you know, went full blown. I was that one thing I had a hard time getting past. And I, I, I deal with this now with other people when they ask me questions about it, or we talk about it and what are we going to do? I still like the idea of having a police force or a fire department or a hospital and all that stuff. And, and that's just like you said, none of that stuff's going to go away. If anything, it'll be more, they'll be, they'll be more accountable because it'll all be privatized. You won't have people. They're just, they're, they're being paid by stolen funds. So they're not as accountable as if you, if you have a private police force, that's one thing I try to explain to people is it's not, none of that's going to go away. We're still, there's still going to be rules and be, you know, it's just, it's just common basic human decency, you know, and there's going to be bad people. I get it, but there's bad people now and they're all in, <laughs> a bunch of them are in the government. I try to make the picture of government as like this big giant Mad Max like looking machine. Right. And right on top is this one seat and every four years or two years, 
everybody gets around the machine and argues about who gets to sit in the seat. And that's, that machine keeps growing because when the new guy takes the seat, they make the machine bigger. They add on their pet projects or their policies that they think are really important, or they try to shore up constituencies so people will vote for them and their team in the future. And now we went from this little Toyota to at what the constitution was at least trying to get to, to this hulking monstrosity. And it's just, it's just bowling us all over. And um, we, we lose sight of the fact that we can be, I mean, I, I always try to make the point to people that the DMV is not just a cliche argument for small government types. It really is how the government functions in a tangible sense for everyday Americans. And so if you want to DMVize healthcare or the police, which we've seen, go ahead and call the police and try to set a complaint forward and see how far that goes. Um, or any other critical service that we see, we, we already know what that looks like. It's inefficient, it's slow, it's unresponsive, and it's completely disinterested in your, your individual views. And if you take the same, the same sort of argument and you put it towards a Walmart or even a small business, and you try to make those same petitions to them, you'll find that customer service is great and they're concerned about keeping you as uh, a loyal shopper or whatever. And you can, just with that object lesson, just with that, that contrast, you can see the, the viability of market options in all of these government programs. Right. That's good stuff, man. I, I think we've covered a lot today. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to it. I guess whenever we first started this, you reached out because I'd asked for people that be interested in in writing for our blog, and you reached out, and then you sent me uh, something you wrote for antiwar.com, and I was like, "Yeah, this guy's got to help. He's 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 going to have a lot a lot of good things to say." And this has been a fun conversation, really. It's but go ahead and plug your plug your uh, your stuff, and then I'll let you go and get back to your family. Uh, yeah, so I I have published a. Few pieces, handful uh, for antiwar.com. Um, I have my own website, antiwarwarvet.com. Uh, you can go there. You can check out all my pieces, even those that have been published at other sites. I always publish there uh, just for posterity's sake. Um, and I have a my Instagram is really my my most used social media, but everything from my Instagram goes directly to my Facebook page. All of which is the same, antiwarwarvet. Um, and that's, you know, the, the brand is right in there. I'm, I'm a Christian trying to talk about particularly foreign policy because it's an area that I have direct experience in and have taken a huge interest in. And so I write about the war state and about um, how often it's secular. It's just issue-based writings. And other times I, I try to speak to my Christian audience because ultimately my hope is that I can plant seeds for peacemaking for Christians. So yeah, it was it was a great time talking to you, Craig. You're you're doing a great thing here, and I'm really excited for this project. And I really appreciate you having me on. If y'all have not read his article, The Bad Roman, yet, I strongly recommend going and reading. It's just it's it's excellent. It's an excellent excellent piece. I can't say it enough. I've read it a couple of times just to as a refresher for this interview, but also because I loved it so much. But anyway, man, I'm gonna let you get back to your family, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about The Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com.